I went to my first bar trivia night like since pandemic uh, last week and I actually thought that I was going to this thing at a bookstore. I didn't realize I was going to a bar until like 10 minutes before I was walking out the door. Yeah. So that was like way too late for me to back out, way too late for me to change my mind. I'm like, all right, guess I'm going to a bar. Yeah. Trivia and comedy were a bar's last gasp in most cases. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. I mean, like, I mean, we, yeah, it, we did well. It was it was book themed, so we did pretty well, but we were also like sitting next to a bunch of trivia nerds who did incredibly yeah. well. So it was just, yeah. we got, you know, whatever it was, 26 out of 30, they went 30 for 30. There was no actual prize, so that actually made me feel better. It was just for bragging rights. Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode 271 of the Matinee Cast. It's a movie-loving podcast on the movie-loving website, thematinee.ca, your home for cinematic passion and perspective. We are at a strange time in this uh, pandemic of ours because here in my hometown of Toronto, things are opening back up. Things are a little bit safer to do and patron and go to. You obviously heard me talking off the top of this show about going to a trivia night at a bar. Um, but at the same time, it's not uh, quite in a place where one feels like they can really linger. So while I'm now finding myself in a place where I go to movies and I go to the you know to, to a bar to for for a drink on a patio or even you know by the time this goes to air I'm gonna have seen my first real concert in two years I'm still not at a place where I really see my friends there and that's really annoying and disconcerting and it's it's like you're so close to being back to what you remember but not close enough and that's really where today's guest comes into play because I used to see this guy all over the place. I would see him at movies, I would see him at bars, I would see him at concerts and shows and this kind of thing. But it's like, if we see each other, you know, we'd both be masked up and we'd both be keeping our distance and it wouldn't be the same. And not only that, but I haven't actually run into you for a long ass time. So I'm happy to have him back on the show. It's been far too long as you'll hear in the um, Know Your Enemy section of the show. But uh, Corey Pierce is here. How are you, man? Uh, I'm good. I mean, there's a lot of good news that we can talk about later on a personal front. Yeah. Uh, I will broadcast to the world that my uh, dad is found out just two days ago that he is cancer-free. That's fantastic. So we're all kind of delighted uh, today. And I got a new 4K TV two hours ago, Ooh. so it's a good day. Now, inquiring minds want to know, what movie did you use to road test it with? Oh, I don't have a 4K Blu-ray player yet. Oh, wow. <laughs> we, had, we had a TV that died three days ago, so we're like, okay, we're getting a 4K TV. This is true. So uh, I guess, if anything, like the next expensive purchase would probably just be a PlayStation 5, so all the bases are covered. If I and, if I know you, you're going to get yourself a 4K copy of Speed Racer. Uh, if that exists. Uh, we have a couple 4K like Blu-rays where I bought a Steelbook and I had both of them or something like that. Okay. But I imagine the first 4K is either going to be uh, probably just some be some piece of crap show on Netflix that happens to be in 4K. Watch Love is Blind will be the road test <laughs> Dear for Lord. a 4K TV. You do what you got to do, man. Yeah. On episode 271, we will be discussing The French Dispatch. We'll be flipping the record over to play the other side. But first, we need to learn more about Corey. This is Know Your Enemy. Mr. 
appears first appeared on episode 136, which by the way I was thinking that is kind of late in the game for you to just be showing up that I got into triple digits. But uh, such is life, I suppose. Um, on episode 136, we discussed Ex Machina, and we learned that the first movie that Corey ever saw in a theater was Pinocchio. The last movie he'd seen at the time was the animated version of G.I. Joe. The worst film he's ever seen was some animated version of Titanic. The unseen classic or essential uh, was Seven Samurai. The film he wished he'd made, for various reasons, is Freddy Got Fingered. Corey returned on episode 158. We talked about the nice guys. We learned about the film that he digs that everybody else hates is speed racer. The film everybody else liked that he doesn't is drive. The last movie to make him cry was the little prince in the movie of his life. He'd be played by Eldon Henson. The movie he was watching next was the BBC version of the diary of Anne Frank. Then Corey returned on episode 179. We talked about baby driver. That is a movie that's not aging very well. No, I mean, <laughs> it's been cursed with, uh, well, first of all, we got Kevin Spacey and, I think Ansel Elgort was in some sort of trouble for a while. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's it's not doing well for, for yeah. all involved. Um, but we talked about it, and it was a good show. And we learned that the film that made his love of film turn a corner is Election. His first date movie was Batman Forever. His sick day movie is Empire Records. The film to leave him speechless was Melancholia. And his epitaph, oddly, would be Feed Me a Stray Cat from American Psycho. <laughs> Then uh, Corey's last appearance was episode 230. We talked about Ready or Not. We learned the film he really digs but never wants to see again is Hotel Rwanda. The last film to genuinely freak him out was Wreck. The film that always makes him laugh is UHF. His favorite movie soundtracks, plural, are Empire Records and A Mighty Wind. And the film he loves but seemingly nobody else has heard of, at least in North America, is a film called Barfy with an exclamation mark. B-A-R-F-I exclamation point time for round five mr pierce when you go to the movie theater when it's safe to do so when it's comfortable to do so where do you like to sit well these days uh i've been kind of much more careful and i've been taking the back where where it's available mm -hmm. uh just because i feel i don't know about you but i feel self-conscious about I, I don't want to need the mask on all the time, but I feel subconscious about taking it off. Like if people are going to be freaked out or something like that. Mm. If I'm in the back, I can, you know, judge the situation as it seems to be around me. <laughs> but uh, traditionally before uh, all of this, I would be uh, in the third row of the second section, I guess you could say. Okay. Not the very front of the theater, yeah. but like when you get like the railing areas where people are walking by. Yeah. Three rows back. Um, it just seems like a nice easy spot and then the four through connections sort of you know kind of mentally reinforce it as a patriotic duty <laughs> so uh, that was uh that a is thing for a while that is very very true you know i don't think i've actually asked this question since we've been able to start going back to the theaters and it's kind of added a new wrinkle to where one likes to sit one thing i'm noticing is at least here in canada with the major movie chain that we're all you know at the mercy of you have to buy your ticket in advance and now you can't move. So you got to hope that like your spot, if you have one is available, that it still suits your preferences. Um, all things considered. And I mean, once you're there, like if you're sitting next to a talker, you're stuck. Yeah. I've been lucky though. Like, uh, two out of the three, uh, theatrical experiences I've had in recent days, I was the only person in the theater. Hmm. So green Knight, <laughs> venom and, uh, uh, Shang-Chi and the Myth. So actually, I, I forget I've been at a few more things that I have. But uh, yeah, um, pretty pretty decent uh, 
track record overall. Uh, depending on where you are in town, you know where to pick the right theater that you're most likely to have less people too. So I, I'm afford that ability based on where I am in the city. Yeah, I think for, good. for me, it's also becoming like time of day. The 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 Friday night shows are becoming very much a thing of the past for the time being. Um, I mean, next week, in the next episode of this show is going to be The Eternals. And that's going to be my first like opening night experience in a very long time. And if you could go on a date with any movie character, Corey Pierce, who would you choose? Uh, this was sort of difficult. I don't necessarily have like there are people like like obviously like actresses or movie characters you can find attractive one way or another, but sometimes a lot of them can be like like a mess and you don't know what that says about you if you pick them. Uh, so I decided to sort of bunt and say Miss Piggy. <laughs> yeah, that's uh that's definitely a sack fly to left. Um, okay, I mean. You know, she's sophisticated. She's, she's... It would be memorable. <laughs> this is very true. You may not live to tell the tale. Yeah, you, you would watch your words very carefully. Yes, you would. Uh, you would basically be listening rather than talking. Yeah, uh, oh yeah, for sure. Uh, you, you, would, uh, you would have a very good meal, I'm sure. Oh yeah. And, uh, and, the, and the ser- people uh, would make sure to give you the best possible service lest they meet their peril. This is very, very true. Uh, yeah, you know, like, yeah, she, she'd take you somewhere good. Basically, you just need to be, go and be a good listener. You don't even probably really need to do that much heavy lifting. Um, okay, well, that's that's certainly a different answer. So thank you for that. Uh, Corey Pierce, what is the dirtiest film you have ever seen? Oh, man. Uh, so I've seen like a lot of them, a lot of movies where, you know, like they're either sleazy or, you know, there's like non-simulated sex in the film. Uh, and I, I could have gone that road and say something more, whether like blue, brown bunny or short bus or something like that. Right. But instead I'm going to a, a movie that I feel traumatized me. Okay. Uh, uh, when I was in high school, uh, with our friends, we'd have, you know, like, you know, movie night sleepovers where everybody's playing, you know, playing, uh, Sega Genesis and then playing, you know, horror movies all night. Uh, and, uh, one of our friends got into an anime kick from the local, uh, movie store and decided to rent a film called Yurosuki Doji, The Legend of the Overfiend. And this was one of the first sort of like animes to really hit like theaters like over in like North America. That's like 1987. Okay. It was actually released like in theaters. Okay. It was the first, I looked up uh, on IMDb. It's the first anime given an NC-17 rating by the MPAA. Okay. And the names of the voice actors in the English language version are all fake and have sexual connotations like oh, great. sexual pun names okay. because all of the actors were disgusted by the film. <laughs> now, basically this is your typical sort of anime post-apocalyptic like uh, anime. Yeah. But I mean, I don't know how old most people are when they first heard, hear the word hentai. Right. Okay. But this is what we're talking about. This is like hentai making it into like mainstream theaters somehow. Uh, and just sort of the first shots of tentacles going into places where tentacles are not meant to be, and young like Japanese characters like doing the porkies thing where they're spying on all like the girls in the shower, and you know, you know, basically you're seeing things animated that your young mind did not realize could be animated. I mean, we knew about like heavy metal was out there, or like vaguely heard about Fitz the Cat or other sort of like R or X-rated like cartoon stuff. But this was on another level, and to be frank, like it, like I, it's, I swore off anime, like in, well into my 
late twenties because of it. Like I was really linked to even like a Miyazaki because this was like you know like all right you know what anime no <laughs> I'm done with you for a while I can't handle it I'm traumatized. I so when did that movie come out? I think it came, it came out in like 1987, but okay. I would have saw it in like 1994, 1995, right. or something like that. It's a very similar story. I was I was late to anime. I was so late to anime that I was like blogging by the time that I got into it. And I do remember that um, um, Alex Kittle and Sasha James and Andrew Robinson put together um, a syllabus for me to actually get me into anime. And they're like, there's a lot of different facets to this genre. It's not, you know, like it's not a genre for starters. It's just a style. And there are all kinds of stories that are being told within this style. um, Because I had it in my head of what the kind of thing that you saw, because I believe when I was younger and um, you know, I, I went to an art school, usually in the art studio, there was always like one of those TVs playing and somebody had a video that was just kind of background noise. Like nobody was really watching, but you know, it was just, it was on just to kind of like make conversation and fill the room. And there were a handful of guys in the class who were really into anime at the time. And I don't know if they played it, quite that extreme but those kind of movies where things got dirty in a hurry those are the kind of movies that they usually tended to play and that really like you that checkered my whole experience of it now yeah (laughs) i'm pretty sure that i never saw that because that would have stuck in my brain but um, into like those very very early like uh well i forget what it was even called like the cinecast before it was like row on row three I don't even remember what Andrew James's site was called back at the time, but I just remember like listening to them and you know they're talking about stuff like Grave of the Firefly or something like that. And it wasn't really until then when sort of sort of being like amongst this sort of budding group and wanting to be a, a, like be one of the, the cool film nerds when you start to actually dip your toes back in and you know get over your. Uh, sorry, what was that film called? One more time. Uh, Yuro Suki Doji, The Legend of the Overfiend. Sounds like a hit. <laughs> uh, Corey Pierce, what is your favorite black and white film? Uh maybe not an exciting choice or get a lot of cred for picking something like super old, but I'm going with Ed Wood. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Why that one? Uh, I think it was just a matter of love. Like it was like you going with either this or citizen Kane, which also maybe reads basic to most people like as an easy answer. You like what you like, man. But, uh, but I don't know. I just, um, like a lot of people like my age, like Tim Burton was kind of the man for a specific period of time until he wasn't. Uh, and Ed Wood was kind of the kind of proving ground that, you know, like, Hey, no, this is actually good. You know, see who we can do this too. <laughs> and, um, it had like people like Bill Murray kind of doing, you know, something different. Well, before that became uh, a thing that Bill Murray did, did on the reg, uh, <laughs> and, uh, Johnny Depp, who I was not really a fan of otherwise at the time, uh, doing a hell of a job and just the kind of whole story and the aspects of everything from movies and, uh, and you know the cross-dressing and just like everything kind of going on was was of interest and the actual kind of acting style was both like high-end but cartoonish in a very entertaining way Mm -hmm. and i've just kind of gone back to it more often than any uh any other film like it it makes me nostalgic in a way because it makes me nostalgic for a time when johnny depp wasn't playing a weirdo Every single time. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like his portrayal of Ed Wood is still a caricature, right? Like he's still doing the Tin Man and Casey Kasem. This is a time before Tim Burton was strictly adapting 
previous stories, you know, like before he was doing Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and before he was doing Dark Shadows and before he was doing, you know, Planet of the Apes. Like he he got to a stage in his career where he kind of seemed incapable of writing an original story again. And I don't really know why, because for a long time he was telling some really, really wonderful stories. So there's nostalgia for that as well. So you're going with the answer of like your favorite movie that just so happens to be in black and white. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, I like that. That's these questions are always open in for interpretation. So I always like seeing where people take them. All right. Last but not least for now, what is a film you like that nobody would expect you to like? Um, also kind of a, a bit difficult because uh, I feel like people who know me know my tastes are, you know, somewhat eclectic uh, and that, you know, I'm not really kind of ashamed of anything I like, mm-hmm. but uh, just for the sake of you making a point, uh, I'm going with uh, the fault in our stars. Okay. Uh, which is the, uh, Cancer girl in love, uh, going on a trip, or you know, over to the Amsterdam with her cute boyfriend, and he gets sick, and a lot, a lot of tra- tragedy. Um, and I think the point I maybe making with that is that I think that's you know, actually um, on the poster, by the way. La 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 tragedy. <laughs> tragedy uh, is that uh, I don't shy away from kind of YA or the YA. Um, stigma i guess you could say mm-hmm. uh, i'm not exactly like a ya ruler or anything like that I, in fact i don't read anywhere near as much as most people i'd say but as far as like uh why like a number of movies that would count as ya whether that's anything from like those divergent movies to like uh borderline stuff like perks of being a wallflower the earl and the dying girl paper towns uh, recently the map of tiny imperfect things which is quite good actually i feel like there's a, a level of YA that you know actually is pretty accomplished and I think they get beat on or people have to like they have to apologize for them like before they praise them yeah in a way that kind of upsets me I feel like it's like like the cool cinema guy, people are trying to like be like kind of you know gatekeepers over what is like a, a legitimate drama <laughs> you know what I mean and it feels like anything that's sort of maybe stereotypically uh, geared towards either young people, especially young women, mm-hmm. is kind of inherently seen as as lesser. Oh yeah, and uh, and I don't like that. No, I, I see it, and it really turns me off. And I think it's it's one thing that kind of can turn me off, kind of the film community in general, is how flippant they can be about uh, about stuff that doesn't fit within a, a certain narrow window of what is you know high art. Yeah. YA is a really, really interesting beast because, I mean, we're talking about a medium based on another medium, and that's always got its own set of rules and ifs and buts and whatnot. Because, you know, just because a film is not necessarily the best film, it doesn't necessarily mean that it was the book's fault, right? And just because you know, just because a book isn't even a great book doesn't necessarily mean that it's not a good book. There is YA that's crap, but I mean, there is some very accomplished fiction writers who also turn in crap. Believe me, there's been a lot of times where I will read a book based on the author's name and find myself regretting my choices four or five days later. And that's me as somebody who reads really quickly. I would perish the thought of somebody who regrets their choice one week later or two weeks later or even more. Um, So there is, you know, there is crappy YA, but there's crappy everything. And you're right, because it is largely a genre that's aimed at young women um, the same way that a lot of mass market fiction is aimed at older women. Um, 
it gets looked down upon. Fault in Our Stars specifically, I like that movie. Um, I'm with you. Yeah. That, that's it's you know it's not it's not high theater, but it's not trying to be. It's quite genuine. It's quite heartfelt. Um, it's the kind of thing that you're going to hear talked about in like five or ten years as a pop culture classic. Like the same way that a lot of people right now will gush over The Notebook, um, yeah. which again is not a perfect movie, but for what it sets out to do, it, it does a wonderful job of it. Um, and now here we are 10 years later that the people who it was aimed at are more mature and they still love it. You know, you're going to find that with a movie like The Fault in Our Stars. Um, yeah. And rightfully so, because it's a good movie. Yeah, uh, I will say that uh, when we were in Amsterdam uh, a few years ago, we happened to be like near where some of the th- things were, were shot. Like, obviously, we went to the Anne Frank house. Right. You know, so that doesn't really count. No. But we uh, we stumbled upon like the house of uh, where Willem Dafoe's character lives yep. where they kind of have a fight there so yeah i, I kind of enjoy sort of very minor film spotting stuff like that like the obscure like houses that don't really aren't, aren't that important but i you know you just sort of make a little trip out of it there's so. probably a line yeah. of people waiting to take a picture at the bench right yeah yeah hey man so, <laughs> you're, you're talking to the guy who takes books on his vacation specifically so he can take pictures in front of places where the books are set so <laughs> i get it believe All me right. Well, there we go. Okay. That's more about Corey Pierce. Um, some some very interesting answers. Thank you, sir. I should expect nothing less at this point in the game. Um, we are going to move on to the new slang. The new slang for episode 271 is the French Dispatch. Come on back right after this. French Dispatch, or as its full title is, The French Dispatch of the Liberty Kansas Evening Sun, was written and directed by Wes Anderson. It stars Bill Murray, Owen Wilson, Tilda Swinton, Benicio Del Taro, Adrian Brody, Leah Sadu, Francis McDormand, Timothy Chalamet, Lena Kudry, Jeffrey Wright, Matthew Amalric, Liev Schreiber, Edward Norton, and many, 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 many other people. The French Dispatch is a fictional magazine, very much like the real-life New Yorker. It features highly educated writers telling highly educated tales for highly educated readers. As our story begins, the final issue is going to press after the sudden death of editor Arthur Howitzer Jr. That's Bill Murray. The final issue includes three feature stories, all of which takes place in the fictional French town of Ennui sur Blase. There's the tale of the violent criminal in prison who is discovered to be an artistic genius. There's the tale of the student radical who leads the chessboard revolution, all while having a May-December affair with a journalist covering the story. And then there's the story of the police cook who somehow finds himself a pawn in the kidnapping of the commissaire's son. All of this and more is detailed in sharp prose and careful structure, allowing the reader to step into life in the warm provincial French village with a great deal of understanding and warmth when you read as much as i do but then again who does you inevitably find yourself picking up an omnibus by an author you admire usually the experience is the same some of the stories you like some of the stories you don't there may or may not be an overarching theme linking them all and ultimately what you take away from it is less a reaction to one narrative than it is a feeling of whether or not the storyteller was able to keep momentum so here we are 
putting an omnibus by Wes Anderson back onto the shelf, or if you're me, slipping it back into the library Dropbox, and asking ourselves, was the man able to seize momentum? So pop quiz hotshot, where the French dispatch of the Liberty Kansas Evening Sun is concerned. Do you think Wes Anderson seized momentum? Uh, no, actually. <laughs> okay. Not, not, not when framed like that. Uh, I'll say, like, I thought the film was, I, I really liked the movie. Okay. But it, it, as far as that question goes, uh, definitely not. Um, I will say, I went into this com- as completely cold. I had, didn't even know it was, like, kind of like an anthology, you know, style. Right. Uh, style, you know, Buster Scruggs-esque kind of, kind of, you know, set of stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, w- I wasn't 100% sure who was in it. Right. I didn't know really anything at all. So when it first started playing and, and that Owen Wilson segment, which really just is basically kind of setting the town and the places where you're going to be visiting. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is the, the pace and, and, and lightning quick, like way that he was kind of going everything, everything was going. And, and, and then that section ends. I just had this feeling like, Oh no, <laughs> kind of feeling like, like I, I felt like something like that. If it was just going to be like these short bursts, like all over the place for like, uh, like two hours, that maybe would have been, kind of torture uh i will say like i i i am maybe as close to as a wes anderson fanboy as most people as anyone could be sure i'm the guy that has all the you know the matt zoller zeitz books that cost all that all those money with all the nice pictures in them yeah and all the criterion versions of everything I've double dipped pretty much every one of his titles at this point <laughs> but i i will say that you know um that i i get the criticisms of wes anderson and i actually think he increasingly does as well and and when you consider like that he's only getting more and more stylistic he's only adding more and more people to his repertoire that something like this was almost kind of necessary for him to get to uh and and really kind of be able to like have like all these different abilities and different ways to like get every single sort of set piece and influence and uh all his little tricks all out in one movie almost like an excuse but that said, uh, I feel like, like a lot of kind of those omnibus or anthology type movies, uh, I'm of the mindset with, with most movies that I kind of need to reset like every single time it gets onto a new story. Mm-hmm. And, some, and I can maybe feel a little out of it for like a short little bit while I'm sort of acclimatizing myself to the new story. And uh, I feel like the way that these stories are and the way that his style is with everybody talking so fast and the narrator's kind of, you know, setting everything up so fast that it's very kind of jarring, like at, as one story ends, to reset back into um, kind of the same uh, formula, I guess you could say. Uh, and, and that made uh, specifically like the second of these three entries kind of like feel like it kind of I, I like glazed over for half of it. Um, and I got back around by the by the third uh, major story, but even there, like I was knowingly having to reset and focus and kind of struggling to kind of keep up with the uh, pace, uh, setting itself back up over again. It wasn't a very natural flow uh, through each one, and definitely wasn't a natural flow into the uh, overarching deal with the actual magazine and what was going on there. Yeah, I mean. Mutual friend of ours and friend of this show, James McNally, has for a long time now been hosting uh, a shorts festival here in Toronto called Shorts Not Pants. And what I've loved about his his programs, even though I haven't gone to near as many of them as admittedly I should, um, and, and not even should, but want to, um, 
is James is really good at taking these shorts and turning them into a mixtape, right? It's less yes. an omnibus and more of a, more of a, you know, <laughs> if you're one of the younger listeners, a playlist. You sometimes get two back to back that complement each other, but a lot of times you get this wander down the path and here we're going someplace pretty and here we're going someplace scary and here we're going someplace moody and now we're back to someplace pretty and 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 there's a flow to it all that i think is what makes a story like this or, or an experience like this pass or fail um when you're getting it all by one artist um you know, I don't know about you, but when I make my playlist, if I make a playlist by one artist, it's got a different set of rules than a, than a whole mix of like 20 or so different artists would be. And that's where we find ourselves with the French Dispatch. We're, we're listening to a playlist by one artist, and I don't think he's mixed it as well as he could have. Now, like you, I like I would never go so far as to say this is a bad movie. This is far from a bad movie in terms of what's out there and what one could see. Um, and even in comparison to Wes Anderson's other works, this is okay. Um, and as far as an omnibus concerned, this is also just, okay. There was one story I loved. There were, um, you know, we, we, we basically get three full stories and two shorts. Um, the shorts are fine. They're, 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 they're in and out before you can really kind of, really gain a, a real appreciation for what they are or are not. And of the three main stories, I loved one. I liked another one. And a third one, I just, I never got my teeth into. Now I was always amused and I think I laughed out loud at at least all of them. But when I took the whole thing as a complete experience, I'm like, mm, that was bumpy. I mean, obviously you have to like, it's not even like a B side. I feel like Buster Scruggs is the other thing that happened recently that you could compare this to. Mm -hmm. And I think that one has a much better flow uh, and like with the varied kind of amount of time that is spent on each one of those stories in that film yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, with this one, uh, it's just one of those like uh, the sum of its parts is greater than the whole situations, I think, where I could see myself going back to this and I would maybe intentionally like skip right to the second story and just focus on that one itself rather than having, you know, the reset issue, I guess you could say. And I could maybe get more out of it or, or maybe notice certain things that I didn't notice the first time. I think it's that kind of movie where it's kind of like the omnibus or like if I had got like a Chuck Klosterman book upstairs, you're just going to thumb right to the one you want to want to read yeah. and, and then put it back down. And I think you can do that with this with this movie overall. I, I think the overall like the overall story uh, of this, you know, editor who wants to put his things together, it's, you know, kind of weak. But when I think about uh, all the pieces like of, of everything that's going on, like all the little lines, like the weird little line readings and someone pacing over here and, and all of his little touches. And he has more touches than maybe ever. Like when I consider the amount of, t of entertainment I got out of it and the amount of things I remember out of it, like it's more than a lot of movies that I would consider better. <laughs> In the one hand, it's being propped up by the fact that, He's got such a command of the visual language that even when he's making something that feels lesser, like to me, um, I ne I still haven't really come around on Isle of Dogs. Isle of Dogs to me is still just fine. It's the one I watch just because it's the last one in the stack. Even though Isle of Dogs for me is fine, 
there's all sorts of visual flourishes in it that I love. If you handed this work to one of the, you know, many Anderson-esque storytellers out there trying to do the, the same thing but not, it wouldn't work. But because he's got such a command of this visual language that he's built up over 20 years now, even when he isn't exactly firing on all cylinders, he's still firing on enough cylinders that it keeps you in it. Now, I do want to kind of take these one by one because the three main ones are very different and they've each got something interesting to talk about. So the first one we've got is the story of an artist played by Benicio Del Toro, who also happens to be uh, a, a, a uh, an insane criminal um, and just happens to be a, a gifted one. Um, I don't know about you, this one, maybe it's just my own like background and what I'm bringing it to it. This one for me was the highlight of them all. I agree. Okay. Not just like that Benicio Del Toro fits like a glove and feels completely fresh as someone that hasn't been in one of his films before. Yeah. Um, but uh, we haven't seen Adrian Brody really do a whole lot in a while. And I feel like he stole the entire movie. Mm-hmm. He was one of those people that can deliver Wes Anderson dialogue that's just at the edge of like it's like self-aware without winking yeah you know what i mean like just he's not like actually in that ed wood zone of you know like cartoonish like there's like a, a, a scene where he's like explaining that there he's not going to do like still ice and stuff anymore and like he's changing different positions in the room for every single one of the line readings that he does yeah. in a way that's very much like one of max fisher's rushmore stage plays like that ha- happens a lot in this film as far as like staging and stuff goes like literally like they pick up like foregrounds and carry them away while you're looking at a, a set, you know what I mean? Um, and I feel like Wes Anderson is in touch with his, like, inner, like, accepting his inner Max Fisher more than ever, <laughs> where, like, he wants to do that sort of ridiculous theatrical kind of, like, state, like, stage theatrical thing where people might feel like, oh, that's Wes Anderson, you know, being self indulgent again. But I feel like it's one of those extremely weird situations where something is completely self indulgent but not pretentious. Remind me about Max Fisher when we get to the next section, because there was a very, very big Max Fisher moment in this movie. That's almost impossible to miss. And that was almost where I was like, okay, we're going, we've gone too far now. What works for Brody is Brody has, Brody has a body that is so expressive. Like Brody's face, he's got those huge eyes. He's got this really long, narrow face and whenever he moves, he's like he's got like he's really long and lanky. So anytime Brody runs, it's magnificent. Like it's it's no fluke that you know he's he's in another Wes Anderson movie where he's running several times in slow motion, and it looks amazing. But I'm thinking of like the scene where Benicio del Toro tells him like because there's rioters outside this cell block, he tells him lock the door, and he like sprints <laughs> over to the door and throws the bolt, and the whole thing comes <laughs> crashing down around him. Like yeah. you see like Buster Keaton in the way he moves. Oh yeah, there's like, like old style like silent film stuff kind of all over this. Even though it's you know full of sound and vision and everything. Yeah, and then yeah. in the middle of all this, you've got Leia Sadu doing this wonderful piece. I mean, the, what I loved about that was this is the one of the three that was really really unexpected because we get dropped into this scene where he's painting a nude and first of all, the painting itself is just bonkers, which I love mm-hmm. and you know, we've got the model doing her pose and she stretches and she cracks her, like she cracks some, some joints, whatever. And then we hear a bell go off and they both kind of like end the session and she gets into uniform and we figure out, Oh, she's a guard and he's a prisoner. And at that moment, like the whole 
vignette just like sings in that moment. And mm-hmm. she becomes this really fascinating little character at the center of this movie. She's the muse and the whip. Yes. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it, she plays it so very well. One thing I also kind of liked that I didn't necessarily think I would like is that uh, he would have, you know, Bob Balaban and Henry Winkler there <laughs> and they're basically just window dressing. Yeah. And it worked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like in another movie, like uh, there's someone would stunt cast something like that and it would completely piss me off that they, you know, have people there who do nothing. Yeah. And actually there's like a couple of such cases in the second story where I feel that is what happens. But in this one, I feel like, like the sort of window dressing of just interesting looking people or people that, you know, uh, just kind of works in its favor. And this is, I think all three of these, at least two of these, if not all three of these are stories within stories. And this is a case, you know, like this is him kind of redoing what he did with the Grand Budapest Hotel. But in this case, I felt that the story within the story worked because the storyteller, whenever we cut back to her narration, is Tilda Swinton and she could read the phone book and we would find it entertaining. Yeah. You know, and she's in full, full Tilda. Oh, yes. I mean, like if anything, like she's she's half the Tilda Swinton and Snowpiercer and half Jane Lynch <laughs> in role models. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or, or anything, really. Yeah. Uh, but uh, and, and I enjoyed that. And I enjoyed that the the back and forth of like the color and the black and white in this. Uh, one thing that I found is like, if anything, like I may be more critical of Grand Budapest Hotel than most people. Interesting. And uh, it's because of the full screen. Not that I, you know, feel like it was like, oh, it's too gimmicky or blah, blah, that he's doing full screen. I just feel that his style is so like manicured that I feel like it usually needs that sort of wide screen to like breathe. Okay. Because otherwise when you constrict it, I feel it becomes kind of too, like overwhelming, like all of his style, like it cut into like a, a smaller place, like both in character and appearance. Yeah. Like I feel it becomes kind of overwhelming and becomes the kind of Wes Anderson that people pick on. Well, and he, and he crops to center, right? So now, yeah. now you're, now you're looking at a square with the subject dead in the middle and it just feels all wrong. Yeah. And so, but thing is, once you put it in black and white, I feel like that's almost like a thing that sort of brings an element of restraint. Like it figuratively, puts the puts it back in widescreen even though it's still you know four to four to three ratio yeah I, I feel like that black and white really works for it and it allows you to sort of cut back into the the color sections and and have some variety yeah uh, I don't didn't know if it happened in this story or one of the other ones but there are a few cases where he cuts to a full uh, widescreen he cuts around a lot and I was gonna bring that up I like this time around I really couldn't understand the logic. No, I mean, it didn't make sense. With, yeah, within within Grand Budapest Hotel, like there's a very, very clear kind of uh, Russian doll version of why we are where we are. You know, like when we're in the when we're in the cemetery and Lutz at the beginning and the end, it's one. When we go to the the storyteller doing his little video thing played by Tom Wilkinson, it's another. And then when we go to the actual like narration of the grand budapest hotel the actual story that's when it's another so anytime we we dial back out there's this there's this you know kind of key as to where we are this one i didn't entirely understand the key because it's not even like you know when berenson is telling us the story of the concrete masterpiece that she is in widescreen and the concrete masterpiece the plot of this particular article is in one three three to one it's not that there's times where it widens out. There's times where it thinks, so I have no idea what the logic is this time around, 
Um, but that was, you know, like that was my favorite of the three. Definitely the concrete masterpiece. The next one going through the sequence is called Revisions to a Manifesto. Um, that one's credited to Lucinda Kremitz. Uh, that would be the uh, Francis McDormand character. What do you think of this one? Uh, well, the good news is that both Timothy Chalamet and Francis McDormand work in a Wes Anderson huh. uh, setting perfect, like completely well. Right. Like, I'm sure we're going to see Timothy Chalamet again. Oh, yeah. I could see him as a lead yeah. in one of his future stories. Totally. Um, but I do feel like this never really fully grabbed a hold of me. Like, it, like they had, it had moments. Yeah. And had like lines and uh, obviously lots of visual flair and everything like that. Yeah. But the actual, like, it feel like it came and came and went pretty fast. Like my, even though it was probably a little bit longer than it maybe should have been. Uh, there's like people that are in this one, like Christoph Waltz, who didn't do anything mm-hmm. and didn't work by not doing anything. Uh, it felt like if it, it was one of the situations where it felt like something was cut rather than that. It was deli- like a deliberate, you know, minimal uh, presence. And I'll say that sort of uh, applies to some of these staff at the actual uh, dispatch itself, whether it was like Jason Schwartzman and uh, I guess Jarvis Cocker was there, but I didn't recognize him. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, yeah, it feels like something was, was, was missing there. And by the end of the story, it feels like it sort of retread kind of like the climax of um, Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah. And in a way that was kind of just sort of like, you know, well, that's not really that satisfying. Yeah. This um, is the one that was really kind of making me scratch my head because I didn't understand what he was going for in this. Anytime you get a story like this, where it's a bunch of shorts, I always get the impression that it was, it's bits and pieces of ideas that artists never really knew what to do with. It's, it's pages out of their sketchbook. It's, you know, treatments that they never were able to develop into a feature. So it's like, well, just jam them together and call it a collection. This is the one in the collection where I really didn't think it was a finished idea. Like this is kind of half an idea. I didn't entirely follow what this revolution was supposed to be about I didn't exactly get who they were. Like, they're obviously fighting the government, but to what end? Um, Chalamet as this Zeffirelli character. I mean, all right, that's cute that that he's called Zeffirelli. Um, But he's got this relationship with this other revolutionary um, played by Kudri. You're not giving me enough time with any of these people to understand what they stand for, why they have all these opposing views, what the opposition is. We're just skirting through it and saying some pithy stuff to kind of be like, basically be like faux band apart. Yeah. Uh, maybe I was just a little, uh, still resetting at the time, but I didn't even understand what was going on with the chess game. Mm-mm. That wasn't just you. No, I have no idea what the chess game was all about and why the moves were, um, dictating how the the standoff was happening. I I didn't entirely understand why they were pulling apart his manifesto and saying, you know, this wasn't working and that wasn't working. I understood the whole idea of um, Kremitz gets a little too deep into her own story and and can't maintain journalistic integrity. Like I think that was cute, but that wasn't really the story they were out to tell for 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 them to be having their affair. That's really like a side narrative of this of this narrative in general. So that was that's the thing. And it's the middle one, too. So this is where it started to lose me. Yeah. 
Uh, I feel like the opening short, like you could have argued that it, you could have maybe fleshed it into a feature. I think even, but this one, I think that doesn't even justify the length that it's already at. No. And it's, it felt kind of long. Like it felt longer than, than Moses and his artwork. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's just because I wasn't digging it. And that's why it felt long. I still laughed at stuff. Like there, there were stuff there. There's still moments in it that gave me a chuckle, but this is also, you mentioned Rushmore before. This is where the story goes full Max Fisher, because at one point this story becomes a play within the story. And I'm like, right. okay, yeah. I'm like, come on, we're not doing the Max Fisher players in the middle of another movie. Like, like get yeah. back to what you were doing here. Of all things that, that, that little aside reminded me of, um, there's a part in Inglorious Bastards when they introduce like the one German guy that's helping them out. Yeah. And he gets like his own little special credit and like they cut away to his story. And sometimes like Tarantino will do stuff like that where like it was like an aside that doesn't matter. Yeah. Like it doesn't bring anything else to the story like whatsoever. Right. And I feel like this was one of those things where it was just like, okay, you know what? You, you made this sort of stage thing and you made it look great like the way that that whole section was lit and everything like it felt out of a completely different time yeah um but it didn't i i have no idea what made it important at all (laughs) i will admit it is really interesting to see wes anderson working in black and white like we've got so used to his color palette and and the you know the kinds of like hues that he tends to work in that it is really lovely to see what happens when you hand him a roll of black and white yeah and that which is which is what most of this this section is i think this it's not entirely in black and white like there are color sequences in it but there's a lot of black and white within this one and he's he he is quite a handsome black and white photographer and and that's when you sort of like we mentioned it already but you really start to see uh, a lot of that sort of silent film era influence that maybe wasn't as fully apparent as it was before. Oh, totally. Like everything from what, just the way that people move around in, in their spaces. Uh, obviously, this, the side views of all of his, a bit of his buildings, it kind of gave me a bit of a vibe even of some of those earlier Smashing Pumpkins videos. Oh, yeah. Meant to be like evoke a different time, like the Dayton Ferris era yeah. of Smashing Pumpkins videos. I dig the look. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I want to see more of it. I just, this one wasn't doing much for me. Mm-hmm. So then our third story is the private dining room of the police commissioner. That one is told by Roebuck Wright. That's played by Jeffrey Wright. Um, this is the story of the cook. Um, this this got me back. It didn't still didn't get me back to the level of um, the concrete masterpieces, but this was a nice little palate cleanser after revisions to a manifesto. What did you think of this one? Uh, I think throughout this movie, we're pretty much fully on the same page. Uh, <laughs> like, I, 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 it was, again, sort of a reset where it took like, me a minute or two to sort of uh, gel with it. But once it started getting going uh, and you just give it enough time, like, everything started kind of falling into place. And uh, when we get to our B-side, my B-side comes from this okay. this section. And uh, I especially loved the uh, detour into animation, which made me feel like, wow, like the way this, this looks, like someone needs to pitch like Wes Anderson to do a 2D side-scrolling like video game. Oh, totally. Because this just looks beautiful and I think it's doable. <laughs> um, and uh, again, though, I don't know if there was any justifiable reason for why it needed to be animated other than to sort of uh, get to the sort of the New Yorker illustration style but get it moving. But 
I enjoyed it. Yeah, it's not necessary, but it's unexpected and it's delightful. And in the middle of everything else, I mean, you know, sure, why not? It, in in a in in lesser hands, the animation would have been its own little short. Um, so I'm happy that they actually just decided let's graft it into one of the other pieces. Um, you know, I could, here's another actor who could recite the phone book and I would totally listen to him do it. Jeffrey Wright, not just because I just spent two months watching what if on Disney plus, but he's just got such a wonderful cadence. Um, I love that he has this switch that he flips when he's reciting his own words like he says he has a journalistic memory not a photographic memory <laughs> he can remember words that he's written he can't remember images um but then when he's talking just off the cuff he does it in a very different style um it doesn't hurt that in this case after you know after the kind of muddiness and confusion of the manifesto here we have a very simple story it's just it's a kidnapping right so yeah. it's, it's it's much easier to get our our teeth into even if we don't entirely follow who's kidnapping this this kid and what they really want um it's still it's a kidnapping of a police of a cop's kid you know that's that's pretty easy to get your teeth into i love that the payoff of this is the writer roebuck wright having this conversation with howitzer about a segment that he pulled out we're given this cookie of Here's a thing I wrote, but I didn't think it worked with the larger piece. Okay, so first of all, neat touch, because already you're dealing with a movie where you've got pieces and you obviously discarded other pieces. And you're kind of expecting something. You don't really know what to expect because he he excised it. But when he reads it, it's just, it's so perfect. And yeah. you get why he didn't want to include it because he felt it was just, it was too personal. But at the same time, you're like, no, that is that's your whole. The, we we agree with Howitzer. It's like that's the story, and it's a bit meta because that's the exact kind of thing that Wes Anderson doesn't really do. The kind of thing that would get cut out. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and but thing is, doesn't he say like I couldn't, uh, I couldn't disagree with you less or something like that? Like he 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 uh, phrased it in a way that made it like sound like, like no, that means you agree with him, right? Am I wrong? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it was it was a he phrased it in a very very odd little way. A very yeah. a very Andersonian kind of way. Yeah. Uh I also enjoy little things from this one uh like getting to see Steve Park who is not in nearly enough stuff. Right. Um again, uh Jeffrey Wright is another guy that can show up in a Wes Anderson movie anytime and fits right in. Yeah. Uh and uh Leif Schreiber for that matter, uh nice little uh, nice little add in a little assist i do love that one of the only color images in this largely black and white story is shersha ronan's eyes because of course oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know it's like <laughs> all right this is clearly somebody who knows what he's doing that, that's that's the thing like every once in a while this movie just sings right and you're yeah. like you're like oh, okay yeah you you know exactly what you're doing i don't know if you know it all the time but you clearly know what you're doing um yeah the private dining room of the police commissioner i liked it I don't know why, but the la the second two felt long. Maybe it's just you. Maybe it's just the old thing of no good movie is long enough and every bad movie is too long. You know, maybe that's what it, is. it was. Is the ones I wasn't digging as much felt too long and the one I really loved didn't feel long enough. I, I also went into it pretty blind. I saw the trailer for this one time back before it was supposed to come out last year. And I hadn't, co I hadn't gone back to it. 
So I'd forgotten most of what I even saw. Um, but I'd heard claims um, as the movie dropped that it was like the most Wes Anderson movie ever, which I kind of found hard to believe because I, I, for me, um, the Grand Budapest Hotel is the most Wes Anderson movie. So I'm like, I don't think he's going to be able to top that. But I think actually this may very well be the most Wes Anderson movie. I don't know if you agree or disagree with that or if that's good or a bad thing. I, I think it is <laughs> in, in, a, in its own way. Yeah. Is that good? Uh, I think so. When we get to our star ratings, uh, I'll, I'll explain. Okay. Yeah. Um, did you find any common themes between these between these little vignettes? Uh, I'm. I mean, no. I mean, it's just pretty. I'm pretty basic. Like, oh, I like these. Uh, I have. I understand. It's just based on a couple of specific stories that he loved in the New Yorker that he uh, loosely based some of these on. Oh, I didn't know that. And. Uh, and real uh, like that's why one of the reasons why he has all those shout outs to all these different like basically magazine writers at the end of his of the film right um but uh I, i'm not familiar with the real stories i probably won't even bother to seek them out but i think they all kind of are exist on their own i do kind of wish after seeing howitzer show up in the um in jeffrey wright's story that maybe there was a bit more of like a four rooms kind of through line of like one character who just appears for like two seconds or something like that in all three of them right um, i mean like we don't even we don't even really get howitzer for all of yeah. them right like we get we get howitzer at the beginning and we get him again when he shows up to talk to the private dining room of the police commissioner and of course you know we we've got them gathering to mourn his death yeah. but we don't you would think that howitzer as the editor would be a presence in all of these stories considering that he's dealing with the writers yeah 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 um, I do like the little bits that we do get with them, like the, you know, no crying and, oh, yeah. uh, writer, it's like, um, silence writers writing, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> that is pretty good. I think for yeah. me, the, the one thing I noticed, and actually, as I was thinking about it earlier today, it's kind of an overarching theme for Wes Anderson movies in general is, and maybe, maybe my brain is just on this because, you know, we're, we're all still kind of sort of staying in one place. Um, there was an overarching theme of people being stuck in a situation. And I think that's actually a lot of Wes Anderson movies. There's, there's this theme of somebody is stuck in circumstances that they are like really struggling to get out of. Yeah, I suppose. And, and, they, and they have to confront whether or not they're going to make the most out of that situation. Yeah. Whether that's um, Cadazio, like Adrian Brody yeah. being stuck in prison and making this discovery uh, to um, journalists, basically like, because you know she may not have bothered to like you know sleep with her subject if she wasn't on the job <laughs> it's just a perk almost you know what i mean yeah um <laughs> and uh obviously like um jeffrey wright is supposed to be writing about you know cakes and stuff but he instead he's telling this completely different story and uh and that's even sort of echoed back into where he's kind of assigned the um book review that he doesn't necessarily want to do no yeah it's it it very much is a theme through this where you know whether it's you're you're caught up in this kidnapping whether you're part of a revolution but you can't actually fully revolt because there's a revolution going on within your revolution or you are you know you are this tortured genius who happens to be locked in place not to mention the fact that the whole thing is how it's they're trying to get out this issue that is heavy you know, like the whole thing is him trying to decide, 
what he's going to cut. And in the end, he's like, well, we can't cut any of it because it's all just too good. So he's got to figure out a way to make it all fit. Um, yeah, there, there was, there was kind of this, there was this theme of getting, of being stuck. Of course, you know, this was all created before the whole wide world got stuck in one place. So it's just happens to be a fluke. But as I say, as you go back through his other films, through Isle of Dogs, through Moonlight Kingdom, you know, you, you realize that a lot of the time his characters are stuck in a situation and just really trying to escape. Um, so it's not, you know, it's not that big a departure. Or him. No daddy issues this time, though. So no, yeah, that, I, I mean that that might be the thing. That might be why I'm a little bit more blasé on it. Is you take the daddy issues out of his out of his ammo can, and all of a sudden he's he doesn't know what to do. I don't know. I, I think I welcome it a bit more, actually. <laughs> That's I'm I'm good with it. If he can tell different yeah. stories, I'm I'm totally good with it. Do you think he might have liked this film more as a series of shorts? Like if they had have dropped one a day on Netflix for a week? Um, maybe. I mean, we've seen him do you know his commercials and he has like hotel chevalier is a short technically yeah things that one feels like molasses compared to all of these ones where i think like that darjeeling chevalier area was maybe the peak of his sort of you know pretension and he kind of got a hold of himself and, and now i think he's well suited to shorts in general i swear i'm the only um, person who likes darjeeling limited i do like jar darjeeling. okay good <laughs> it's, it's good to be I feel with like it's maybe got a bit of a a bad rap in some ways. I feel like it, to some degree, it's the white Lotus well before the white Lotus came out. Um, nice pull. But, uh, but yeah, uh, I, I do think he's suited to shorts. So he should maybe do more. I don't necessarily think he should maybe do it as a feature film again, but just dropping a short every once in a while. That would be seems, incredible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. totally. If there's, only, there's a, I feel like in the Netflix age that it's something that you can do. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's all kinds of platforms that that all of these things can live on that you can you can do them you you can yeah. release them anywhere, right? You don't need Give to Give them the Love and Robots treatment where every single one of them is its own, you know, own play yeah. button. So. I'm I'm totally on board. Um well, we uh we end every review here on the Matinee cast with a souvenir, something tangible or intangible if you could take away from this movie and keep. In a Wes Anderson movie, there are always lots of tangible things that seem really mm-hmm. damn cool. Corey Pierce, what would be your souvenir from the French Dispatch. Well, I want to give first to give a shout out to the actual paintings uh, from the first uh, of the three yep, stories. Sure, because I actually because you have to like they have to pass the test of being the sort of revolutionary like thing that's coming along like the new Picasso, new Van Gogh kind of uh, change maker. Right, uh, and I feel like those. I really actually like the paintings like a lot. Yeah. Like I felt they were really accomplished, and you can't just you know pass off whatever as the you know, you always see like these bad movies with like fake musicians where like they have the big hit and everyone's talking about how they, they changed the world. And it's just like, no, it's just this, you know, bad song that was written for this movie. Yeah. But uh, I feel like they actually like hit a home run with the art uh, in, in that story. So I want to give a shout out to that. However, my, um, my, uh, my choice is in the third story, for some reason, the police of this town have a wrestler on staff. <laughs> Cause of course they do. <laughs> and he has a title belt on him at all times yeah. that says, uh, Luther. <laughs> and, and, and I'm telling you somewhere out there, someone's going to have like a Wes Anderson costume party. And that is a niche costume for the ages. If you want to be the wrestling police officer. I love it. Yeah, I love it. Um, well, you, you kind of stole my thunder. My uh, souvenir would be one of the Moses paintings. Uh, we actually see one as a print later on in the movie in, I believe it's in Howitzer's office. 
Um, there's a there's a there's a poster with the print in the middle, um, and it and it says like underneath it, it's got the title. Like it's it's almost like it's something like from a gallery um, collection. It says like Moses Rosenthal. Eh? Um, I'm gonna bet good money that if I go online after we're done here that i could probably buy that poster and i've got wall space now i could actually probably hang it um but i'm with i'm totally with you it's it's hard sometimes in these movies to create faux work and have it even be remotely like what it's supposed to be like i like yeah the song is a good example i remember a movie i don't really want to call it out because it's not really fair but i remember a movie where the centerpiece of the movie was supposed to be this film director who was supposed to be very very uh, Bergman esque, like he was supposed to be a genius that was in the in a in a league with like Bergman, and we saw clips from their movie and it just wasn't very good. I'm like, how hard is it to do fake Bergman? You know, black and white. You get a get a knight in there, game of chess, some mumbled words, and away you go. But no, the actual fake masterpieces in this. I don't know who they got to design them. I'm sure it's online somewhere. And maybe I can find it for the show notes, but they're gorgeous pieces. Um, they're really, really beautiful pieces. And, and I would love and one of those. I think it's safe to say since all of his other movies eventually get there, but when the criterion of this comes out, uh, every single one of those images in the end credits should be in that booklet. Oh, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. Those, those sketches at the end are, are darling. Uh, we rate here on the matinee cast on a scale of one to four stars. Corey Pierce. So, uh, what do you give French dispatch of the Liberty, Kansas evening sun. Astro Dispatch, 2000, Songs of Love and Destruction and Other Synthetic Delusions of the Electric Head. That too. Yeah. Um, I'm giving the sum three stars and the parts three and a half stars. Yeah. Okay. I'm. You know what? I'm, I, can, I can totally see that. Like I'm, I'm on like a soft three. Like I, I, the more I sit with it, I'm usually kind of – I've got a weird relationship with Anderson movies. Like I come away from ones I should be cold on really hot and I come away from ones I should be hot on really cold. Yeah, same. Um, but – the, that first experience with the ups and the downs and the, you know, I didn't really know. Um, it left me feeling offbeat. So I'm somewhere in between the two and a half and the three, but I'm going to go with the three because of the journey that it takes me on, even though I didn't like every single stop along the way. Um, hey, maybe you think that this movie is genius and we're being too hard on it. Maybe you think that this movie is hot garbage and that Anderson is just repeating himself. Uh, let me know. Ryan at the matinee.ca. Twitter, Mariah Matinee underscore CA or Facebook.com. I guess they're changing their name now, so whatever the heck it is by the time this goes to air. Um, slash Dark Matinee. It's, it's, it's now called Meta, uh, as in uh, Meta Boomer, and then we went to the Capitol on January 6th. <laughs> of course it is. Uh, slash Dark Matinee, I'm there. We're going to be right back. We're going to take a quick break. We'll flip the record over and play the other side right after this. back he's Corey pierce i'm ryan mcneil it's matinee cast 271 we've been talking about french dispatch the new wes anderson movie i believe it's the fourth wes anderson movie we've covered on the show certainly three and maybe mention of another fourth. um it's the other side this is the time of the show where we go uh 
flip the record over, some further reading, some further viewing. Um, looks like I've got two this time and Corey has one, so I'm going to get us started. Um, you know, the obvious connection is that this is a, uh, like we were saying off the top, this is an omnibus film. This is a, a compendium of short stories. There are all kinds of short story compendiums throughout film history. Um, some good, some not so good. I went with one from a few years ago. I, I mean, I say a few years ago, but it's actually uh, quite some time ago now. I think it's 2006. Um, I went back to Paris Jatem. Did you ever see that? That was my choice. Oh, too. how about that? Okay, so we're going to start with Paris Jatem. Okay. So Paris Jatem, 2006. Um, the, the kooky thing about Paris Jatem is that it was supposed to launch this series of... Yeah. omnibus films about cities around the world and near as i know they only did this in new york and then they just quit and i guess maybe there wasn't enough money in it yeah. or who knows it's, it's the sufjan stevens state series yeah of movies. yes it is very much so <laughs> good good pull um there are 22 directors involved with parish attempt they, they include sylvain chamay who did um Triplets of Belleville, the Cohen brothers, Gerard Depardieu, Wes Craven, Alfonso Cuaron, uh, Alexander Payne, Tom Tickfer, uh, Gus Van Sant, many, many, many others. Uh, sorry? Olivier Essayas. Oh, yeah. Shit. I'd forgotten yeah. about that. Um, yeah. And yeah, this one has 18 stories over this. The idea was that each there was supposed to be one for each of the arrondissement, uh, that is to say, like, Right. Uh, neighborhoods. Right. Right. Yeah. One for yeah. One for each neighborhood. It is. This is delightful. This is exactly what I think Anderson is going for or anybody really is going for when they're going for an omnibus story. Shit. Vincenzo Natale has one of these as well. I forgot about that. I love this movie so much. This one is much more in line with when you, you know, name dropped our friend James, uh, the kind of has the flow, uh, the playlist kind of, uh, thing going on like the the arrangement because they don't happen like you know like you know first they're arrondissement second arrondissement no. they don't go in numerical order they go with whatever they felt fit you know uh in, in order and some are better than others mm -hmm. um i remember when i saw it back in the day uh whichever one was like the weird kind of vampire one or something like that that's probably the worst it's, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's it's been a long time since i've seen it a lot of it is fuzzy um, but I do have a few of them that that stuck with me longer over time. Uh, the Coen's one with Steve Buscemi in the uh, in the uh, subway. Yeah. Uh, basically, um, looking at people who are, are fighting and then getting drawn into it. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think of all of them, I am most uh, in love with the the final one with um, Michael Martindale yeah. and the Alexander Payne one. Um, which I feel like, like Alexander Payne gets this reputation of being someone who supposedly like hates all of his characters that he's like, you know, like taking a dump on, like he doesn't, you know what I mean? Like that he doesn't have any empathy for his own characters, sure. but I feel like this one completely proves that wrong because I mean, here she is, you know, she's got this plan for it. She doesn't speak English all that well. And it's funny. I'm sorry. She doesn't speak French all that well. And it's funny that, you know, with her, you know, but she's, she's trying and she's genuinely in love and she has a transformative experience. And I feel like that perspective that they put in there um, is like the perfect way to end that movie. And there's no other uh, of the shorts in the entire film that I feel could have stuck the landing 
like that one does. Yeah, it's it's just it's so sweet. It's so warm. It's so it's so genuine. That's the thing is that there's not a mean bone in that last one, even though you could be mean about a letter carrier trying to write a letter home in broken French. Um, by the by, I got things a little bit mixed up. The vampire story is not Wes Craven. The vampire story is actually by Vincenzo Natali with Elijah Wood and Olga Kirilenko. Wes Craven, I don't know why I, I didn't remember this. He tells what might be my favorite story of Emily Mortimer uh, in the cemetery at the um, at, at uh, Père Lachaise Cemetery um, at the grave of Oscar Wilde. And it's again, it's 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 so just like introspective and romantic. It's not at all what you expect out of Wes Craven. That one stars Alexander Payne and Rufus Sewell, who is kind of like everybody's favorite shit heel. Like anytime Rufus Sewell shows up in a movie, you know, he's just going to be a bastard. Um, but yeah, this is this is the kind of thing I, I, I could spend triple the, the runtime of Paris Jatem with its stories and come away wanting more because they're they're mostly so lovable even though they're so diverse it, it is a two-sided thing where i think you do get some advantages out of having like a couple just a few long stories sure um but thing is if one of them is not really that great then you've got, hey, you move you know, on new york you've got it but thing is you've got a new york story situation on your hands right but um but with this one though if like if each one of them is only like between three and seven minutes if one of them's not great you know it's fine on you go kind of like like ABCs of Death isn't great, but it has that sort of same idea. And uh, obviously the VHS series out there with the same kind of thing like that, where you can maybe feel like you got uh, more out of something, even if the sum isn't also isn't necessarily perfect. Yep. Yep. No, there we go. So you, we had one uh, other side in common. My other other side was, um, you know, I wanted to get another magazine story in there. I wanted to get another story of writers in there. And um, in honor of um, Wes Anderson working in black and white, I wanted to get a black and white story in there. I went way back to a much older time in film history. We're going back to 1940. Catherine Hepburn, Cary Grant, Jimmy Stewart, the Philadelphia story. You know, we've got the we've got the couple that are estranged and, we, and she is getting remarried, but he still loves her. And two magazine reporters are sent to cover it for the society section. And one of them ends up kind of getting in the middle of it all. Um, I, I, I love the whole notion. Okay, a couple things here. First of all, any story where about magazine writers right this moment feels like an absolute complete throwback to another time. Because the notion of magazine writers having this kind of career and this amount of rope and uh, trust and, you know, um, faith by their publication and their editor and it not being an absolute grind of a career is just gone. It is the kind of thing that it is absolutely in the rear view mirror and just never coming back. You know, the, the idea that a writer could, uh, embed themselves in a revolution, you know, uh, with with a with a magazine paying their way, you know. Nowadays, choosing their assignments, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nowadays, a writer may still embed themselves within a revolution, but they're kind of doing it on spec, 
you know? Yeah, and they and they desperately need the story to go the way that they yeah hoped it would yeah. go. <laughs> so, or the idea of two reporters going to cover a society wedding and it not being salacious gossip the way of like TMZ, mm-hmm. you know? And actually, um, uh, French Dispatch does touch on this idea when they mention that the base for the whole thing more or less started out of someone's vacation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But the Philadelphia story, um, if people haven't seen it, I mean, I have not seen it. Oh, it's so good. I have a copy of it. It's so good. It's so wonderful. I mean, everybody is just right in their prime. Um, You know, Hepburn, Grant, Stewart, they're all just absolutely at their top fighting weight. You're watching uh, a a really, you know, trim and hungry Jimmy Stewart, Cary Grant doing his Cary Grant thing, Catherine Hepburn just giving neither one of them an inch. It's and it's it's so funny and so wonderful and just sings right along. It's not even like it's it's not even two hours. It's 112 minutes, and it's wonderful. It's so funny. It's so charming. They remade it actually later on into like a more musical version with um, Frank Sinatra and um, and Bing Crosby with Grace Kelly. So I mean, and it's and it's a rare remake that actually kind of works again because you've got Grace Kelly and Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby. But yeah. To, to see another movie about writers in another age of writers, um, you could probably lump Roman Holiday in with this as well, like the, an era of press being very, very different. But I wanted to go back to the Philadelphia story because it's just everybody in it is just doing so much fun, so much good things. Yeah. So if you've got it, I say watch it and make it a great little Friday yeah. night. Well, there we go. That is episode 271 of the Matinee Cast. I'm so thankful that Corey Pierce was able to come by and we're able to catch up. Come on back. We're coming back on short rest, people. Come on back on Monday, November 8th for episode 272. I'm really excited. We're going to be discussing The Eternals. Uh, can't wait. Chloe Zhao's new film from Marvel. Um, Corey Pierce, uh, you're still on Twitter somewhere, are you not? Yeah, uh, I'm on Twitter at Occam's Ranker. Very nice. uh, I have a letterbox that I don't use anymore for uh, reasons that I kind of have a slight disgust of what letterbox is yeah, at this point. I get that. Um, and uh, once in a while, oh, here's one thing. Uh, once in a while, I contribute a meme to an increasingly popular Twitter account called uh, uh, Blockbuster Plus. Ooh, I will. Um, <laughs> I will have to look for that. And uh, one specifically that I made. Uh, you should look up one uh, called uh, Avengers: Rise of Galactus, directed by Wes Anderson. <laughs> and you can see a thread of what the, what that cast would look like, and it looks pretty. Uh, feel pretty on point i will uh this was a site that um a couple of years ago when disney plus launched um i made a a disney parody account that had over like forty thousand followers before disney nuked it um but there was when i started it it was pretty terrible i had to get a couple people on board to help me out and gradually like it got better and the stuff that i was contributing got better and uh it basically got taken over uh by a friend of mine and she's great and uh, we're very like she's like me if I was 20 years old <laughs> but uh, I still uh, contribute from time to time and I kind of love watching it start to grow all over again it makes me all kind of excited when I have downtime um, well there we go there will be links for that in the show notes of course my site is thematinee.ca for more audio content you can find episodes 
by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them in the usual places. Stitcher Radio, Spotify, Google, Pocket Cast, Blueberry, and also some new places. Tune in, Radio Public, CastBox, and Podchaser. If there's anywhere that you use that I don't, let me know and I'll put it there too. Um, everything gives you handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. Feedback on the French Dispatch or any of the other movies that we talked about today can be left comment section of the site. You can email ryan at the matinee.ca. On Twitter, I am matinee underscore CA. I've only got the one account. And there's always Facebook, facebook.com slash darkmatinee. Any final thoughts, Mr. Pierce? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> we have talked enough. For Corey, I'm Ryan. We'll see you at the matinee.